Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. But what's interesting is it, it's not an accident. It's not just arbitrary linking up cause and effects in supernatural ways. There have been some really nice studies showing that superstitious rituals themselves can be very effective at coping with adversity. So we think, oh, that's odd. Politicians do it, high-performance athletes. You know, surely they know what they're doing. They're used to it, their experience. And that's exactly where we wouldn't expect this kind of appealing to supernatural causation. But it's the opposite that it's precisely in these high-stakes situations of high uncertainty and, interestingly, also a lack of control, where you, you want to control things, but you, you can't always because you're playing across the court another top-world tennis player. It's precisely in these situations that superstitious rituals seem to arise. So it seems that these high-uncertainty, high-stakes, very important situations were precisely the ones where, where rituals become very important. Superstition always haunts the guilty mind. The thief not fear each bushing officer. The perceptive words of British poet and dramatist William Shakespeare. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with evolutionary biologist and author Dr. Dominic Johnson and unpack the evolutionary advantages of believing in God. Yes, you've got it. We're going to tease out why you and me, Jews, Buddhists, Catholics, Muslims and atheists, all believe that you reap what you sow. This is a show about fear, guilt, superstition, cooperation and moral order. Dominic Johnson is a Professor of International Relations at the University of Oxford and he is an internationally recognised expert on evolutionary dynamics and religion in human conflict and cooperation. Dominic's notable reads include Overconfidence and War, The Havoc and Glory of Positive Illusions and Failing to Win, Perceptions of Victory and Defeat in International Politics. Well, in his latest book, God is Watching You, How the Fear of God Makes Us Human, Dominic writes, Many people believe that without religion, society will be unable to function and fall into anarchy and crime. This simplistic argument has been debunked by many, not least Richard Dawkins. Yet, just because religion isn't necessary for good behaviour, it does not mean that it doesn't help. Supernatural punishment can supplement or enhance whatever deterrence there is from secular punishment. Dominic pitches up a very interesting question and asks, are criminals in general less religious than law-abiding citizens? And argues, this is dangerous territory because whatever the relative rates of religious fate, it may be a range of interconnected socio-economic factors that are more influential in whether people commit crimes or not. So, does religion serve a purpose? What would happen in a world without God? And why is payback and concepts of divine punishment and karma so fundamental to human psychology? My name is Dominic Johnson. I'm a professor of international relations at the University of Oxford. I trained originally as an evolutionary biologist. I had my PhD from Oxford in evolutionary biology. But then I got particularly interested in humans and human behavior and went off to do another PhD in political science at uh, the University of Geneva. So now I'm interested in combining these two fields and trying to understand 
political behaviour and human nature from an evolutionary perspective. Really well done on the book, Dominic. God is watching you. It's a very provocative book and uh, wonderfully interesting. I might just start with a quote from an Oxford man, actually, one of your colleagues, uh, Richard Dawkins, from his great book, The God Delusion, where he wrote that the only watchmaker is the blind forces of physics. Do you agree with him on that front? Well, I'm speaking as an atheist and an evolutionary biologist myself, so I do agree with it. The disagreement I have with Richard Dawkins is what the consequences are, because it seems to me that the argument that religion necessarily leads to bad things is wrong, and we have a lot of empirical evidence that it leads to very positive things for individuals and societies as a whole. And that's been the case for thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of years. My take is that um, religion might even have been so important and so useful that it was favoured by natural selection. So what you're saying there is that religion is somewhat essential for moral behaviour, is that it? That it somehow guides us in how we deal with the everyday challenges in our lives? I think it definitely helps, and there's, there's lots of evidence to suggest that. It doesn't mean that without religion we would not be moral or that we would be unable to cooperate. I don't think that's true. But what I argue is that it's an extremely effective method at promoting cooperation and uh, suppressing selfish behavior. The other point about Dawkins is when I lay out my argument to theologians, they often say, fine, you know, God had to have a way of making humans and making human brains and constructing human nature. And if evolution was his way, we don't have a problem with that. So when you go right back to the beginning, we don't have any argument against the existence of God. It's just we're presenting an argument that within the confines of natural selection and an atheistic evolutionary perspective, you can still come up with a theory about why we might believe that God exists. Do you think, Dominic, we all pay a lot of attention to the fact that or we think in some way that something is watching us, some type of supernatural force is watching our behaviour or keeping tabs on us and possibly scoring us for whether we're being a good little boy or a girl or not? Absolutely. This is one of the motivating ideas behind the book, that even people who are not religious seem to recognize this idea that they're being observed and watched and potentially judged and and punished in some way. And you don't have to be religious even to, to have that sense. I think it's very much part of human nature. It's a natural sort of instinctive way of thinking, especially when something bad happens or something good happens. You ask yourself, why me? Now, you write that the expectation of payback is something fundamental to human nature and the human brain. So whether you're a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jew, um, a Muslim, whatever religious group that you sign up to, that you will feel in some way that you will be punished. Yeah, I think so. So a lot of the reaction I get from academic colleagues or theologians in Western Europe anyway is that they say, well, you know, look at modern Christianity and many of the liberal churches don't really emphasize that view. They say God is all about love and grace and it's not to do with punishment. But what strikes me is that I'm interested in all religions around the world and and ancient religions and indigenous religions. And I think in a way, modern liberal Christian churches are a little bit of an outlier in that sense, because you do find this fear of punishment and this concern about violating social norms and offending the gods and the negative consequences that might come if you if you do that it seems to be pretty much universal throughout the world across cultures and through history too so that pattern that kind of common recurrent feature of religion is something that struck me as as always there although often in very different forms 
So religion serves a purpose, it's useful, it keeps us in check. Yeah, I think so. So it's the kind of stereotype or caricature, if you like, that, you know, if God is watching you, then you behave better. And of course, there are many nuances about that and many complications. You can redeem yourself, you can make up for ill deeds, you can spend a whole lifetime, you know, doing good things as well as bad. So it's it's not a sort of instantaneous belief that if you do something bad, you're definitely going to suffer. But I think the idea is, is very simple and very intuitive, that if you do bad things, you will somehow ultimately pay the price. Presumably, though, Dominic, it works the other way as well, that if we're hardwired in some way to believe in the idea of punishment and that we will be punished for our sins, it must affect how we feel that when we're going to be rewarded for good behaviour. Yeah, it does. I think that's true too. So when something really good happens, if you win the lottery or something like that, you start to ask whether... You know, someone is looking down very favorably upon you and has done it for a reason. Um, I think that's true. The, the thing that struck me, and I have a whole chapter on in the book, is why is it that punishment, negative consequences, might have a special leverage? And, and they really do seem to have something special, which makes them more powerful than rewards. So cooperation is all about rewards. So we're aiming to get rewards, that's why we cooperate in the first place. But getting there is very hard. So if you look at the the game theory of cooperation, collective action, things like climate change or very simple cooperation games in the laboratory, what you find is that people are somewhat cooperative, but there are always some people who are going to free ride and cheat, especially in large groups of anonymous interactions like paying taxes or paying your bus fare, where it's very easy to free ride and to get the benefit without paying the cost. Now, not everyone does this, but you can show that as soon as you have some people doing this, cooperation very quickly unravels and breaks down. So you've got to have some mechanism to prevent free riders from undermining social cooperation. And I think that's been a challenge for human societies ever since, you know, the Pleistocene in the small-scale social societies in which we evolved. So the question is, how do you do it? And there are various theories about how you maintain and sustain cooperation over time in the face of free riders but a very powerful one is is punishment if you punish free riders and cheats then you raise the costs of cheating above the cost of contributing to society so you make it simply beneficial to pull your weight so punishment is just a really effective way of doing it the question is who's going to punish and punishing itself is costly so the idea here is that religion is extremely useful because it puts the burden of punishment onto a supernatural agent who is not only able to punish people at will, but means we are constantly observed and constantly punished whether we like it or not. Do you think punishment is a bigger driver than reward? And if so, what does that actually say about the human psyche and our level of, I suppose, moral development? Right. So this is where it gets really interesting, because, again, if you look at the psychological literature, there is this so-called negativity bias. So while we're often optimistic about ourselves, we're very negative when we look out and observe other people and the world in general. There's a a big review of this literature, which was conducted by a team of psychologists, and they called it Bad is Stronger Than Good. And this was their conclusion after reviewing hundreds of studies of whether people pay attention to sort of positive things in the environment or negative things. And overwhelmingly, people pay attention to, to negative things more. They give more weight to negative consequences, negative memories negative decision making so these things weigh heavily on our minds and you might think well that's odd why is that the case and from an evolutionary perspective it makes perfect sense when you go through life and you have to avoid lethal dangers and injury and all the negative 
possible outcomes of living everyday life. Gains are good too, but they're just a plus. But what you really need to do is just be ultra careful and err on the side of caution to avoid the negative events which might kill you. So it's evolutionary adaption to a degree. But not everyone would agree with you there, though, Dominic, that we need a God. So I imagine some people would think that you're asking all the wrong questions. Yeah, so one question is, okay, so let's say cooperation is hard. We need punishment to solve the problem of of cooperation. Why do we need a God to do it? Fine. So we have to have some alternative solution, and we, we do today. We have courts and police and jails and law and so on. But what strikes me as crucial here is that looking back in evolutionary history, in the small-scale societies of our past, we did not have any of those things. We did not have secular institutions of punishment. So if we were to maintain moral order and to sustain social norms, we had to have some other mechanism of justifying it and deterring people from, from breaking those rules. And the consensus seems to be that people did not like to punish each other in small groups you want to limit that because it's dangerous, because of retaliation, because of the cost of carrying out punishment itself. But all of these societies had some form of religion, and I argue in the book that pretty much all of them had quite powerful concepts of supernatural punishment. So without courts and police and law and jails, religion offered a solution to the problem of punishment. So it doesn't mean you have to have it, but it means it might have been especially important in the past and surprise, surprise, every culture we know about has, has always had religion and always had the concept of supernatural punishment. So the empirical evidence to me just weighs very heavily here and suggests that there, there's something about religion which makes it effective and at one time perhaps the only method of effective punishment, deterrence of, of cheats. Were you surprised by that in your research, seeing that religion was a product of evolution? Did that kind of throw you in any way? Yeah, I mean, I always suspected that there had to be a, an adaptive story there, but again, because of its universality. So if it was, as Dawkins argues, sort of a byproduct of human brains, an accident, if you like, it just seems surprising that it would be so prevalent, so important everywhere we look. So I had a suspicion that it would bring benefits. And the more I look, the more obvious they seem to be. Um, I've stressed the positive role of religion in promoting cooperation, but there are others too. There are other theories about um, how it serves as a very important signal of trust with other members of the same religion. And there's a whole literature on positive health benefits that religion can have. So I think, you know, if anything, we have our choice of many different positive benefits that that religion can have for, for individuals and for societies. Now, reading through the book, it seems that superstition and superstitious rituals are very deep-seated in human psychology. You quote uh, some impressive leaders, Tony Blair, Barack Obama, lots of different sports stars, and they all have very interesting types of rituals or superstitions that they go into before they have a big game or whatever. And I was very interested in what you wrote about, I think you mentioned Aidan Moran from UCD. He's a sports psychologist and he's kind of looked at the boundaries between performance routines and superstitions. Can you talk me through all of that? Because it's fascinating stuff. And it's not necessarily what you believe. You wouldn't naturally see some of these sports heroes and sporting leaders as actually vulnerable to superstition. Perhaps not. And the big picture here is moving from religion to atheism. What I'm focusing on is this key aspect of human nature about expecting supernatural consequences for our actions. And that doesn't have to be manifested in religion. It can be manifested in all sorts of 
superstitious beliefs or folklore, karma or something else. And as you say, there are just so many examples of this. You don't have to look very hard to find lots of them. So I have this whole chapter on what I call the problem of atheists, where I basically say atheists, if anything, just sort of prove the rule. They're still concerned about supernatural consequences, even when they're not religious. But um, to pick up on the examples you suggested, I mean, tennis is a huge one. And you can see, watching all of these funny rituals that they have, bouncing the balls a certain number of times. And the player who's been named as the most sort of superstitious of them all is uh, Jelena Dokic. And she just has multiple rituals. So Aid Moran that you mentioned um, looked at this in detail because people often point out, well, you know, yeah, it looks odd, but they're under high pressure. They've got to come up with ways of reducing stress and concentrating. So isn't this just an example of routines which help them perform well? But th this is exactly where the, the sports psychologists are very interesting. Dogish that, you know, clearly the, the extent of her superstitions make it clear that these pre-performance routines don't explain what's going on. And it, it's uh, a manifestation of superstitious rituals in the, in the minds of athletes. So it's coping tools. So they're tapping into superstitions as a way to surround themselves with a feeling of control, basically. Is that it? Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things that Dokic said, she always wants the ball boys and ball girls to give her the balls with an underarm throw. And you might think, well, OK, maybe she just doesn't want to be distracted or something with a high arm. But when you ask her, she says, no, it's just an underarm throw is luckier. So they're clearly superstitious rituals. But what's interesting is it, it's not an accident. It's not just arbitrary linking up cause and effects in supernatural ways. There have been some really nice studies showing that superstitious rituals themselves can be very effective at coping with adversity. So we think, oh, that's odd. Politicians do it, high-performance athletes, you know, surely they know what they're doing, they're used to it, they're experienced, and that's exactly where we wouldn't expect this kind of appealing to supernatural causation. But it's the opposite, that it's precisely in these high-stakes situations of high uncertainty and interestingly also a lack of control where you you want to control things but you you can't always because you're playing across the court another top world tennis player it's precisely in these situations that superstitious rituals seem to arise so people have studied this in indigenous societies to give you a specific example famous anthropologist called uh, Bronislaw Malinowski studied uh, the Pacific Islanders they had sort of two broad types of fishing. One was to go to the lagoon on your own and, and you'd almost certainly find a few small fish just to feed yourself and your family. Or you could go on these multi-person dangerous whaling trips out in the open water. And he found there were no superstitious rituals at all about fishing in the lagoon. But when it came to getting ready to go on the boat out to sea, potentially, you know, lethal danger of hunting whales, um, they were absolutely drenched in superstitious rituals. So it seemed that these high uncertainty, high stakes, very important situations were precisely the ones where, where rituals become very important. Yeah, you, you mentioned Richard So as an anthropologist and he went out with another guy out to Israel and he did some research on how people were responding. I think they were Orthodox Jews, how they were responding to missile attacks launched right. by Hezbollah. I found that fascinating because it showed that religious rituals in some way helped people deal with very hazardous and dangerous circumstances yeah. that allow them to cope with stress. It's incredible to think how resilient people are. And even if it's tapping into something that sounds bonkers, but it actually is a tool nonetheless. Yeah, well, this is the, the, the interesting thing about it, really. And religion is not the only example where 
in facing difficult challenges and decisions in life, human beings often have psychological biases and quirks and dispositions which are not rational, but they are strategies for coping with rapid, fast-moving or difficult situations. So, you know, if you want to design a machine to perform very well in a difficult, uncertain environment, it's not necessarily going to be the case that you need a, a rational sort of calculating robot to just work out the best thing to do. You sometimes need these sort of intuitive biases to err on the side of caution and make the right kind of choices. And you mentioned that example in Israel. And again, it's a bit like the whalers in the Pacific. So when you're facing uncertain, dangerous situations, that's when superstitious rituals kick in to help cope with the stress. And the, the field work they did were with groups of women in high-risk areas and low-risk areas. And in the high-risk areas, they recited more psalms as a kind of supernatural protection against the danger. And remarkably, although they were in the high-risk area, having performed those rituals, their stress, which they measured too, went down. So it seemed not only to be that people did this, but that it was effective in reducing their levels of stress. I think Richard Soas also went to Northern Ireland. So Catholics and Protestants were doing pretty much the same. Obviously, they're not quoting or singing or praising the same verse. But nonetheless, that they were tapping into rituals to survive what they were going through. Yeah, and, and I mean, the, the, the famous sort of catchphrase here is no atheist in foxholes, this idea that <laughs> in a desperate life or death situation where you're, you're literally facing bullets flying over your head, that's when even the most atheistic person might become a little bit religious, either to get his moral orders in, uh, in order before he faces God or just to get any possible help you can in surviving. And, you know, why not try it? Who knows if it's going to work? Dominic, I have to ask you, and it was something um, that made me laugh so much and quite surprised me. You mentioned somewhere in the book that 30-something percent of atheists believe they'll meet some form of God on Judgment Day. And I thought that was crazy. One on what are they thinking? And second of all, what do the other 60-something percent of atheists think the other 30-something percent are thinking? Like, it's all a bit crazy, really, isn't it? But it it plays to your argument that doesn't matter what religion you are or whether you don't believe, you do think that there's some type of supernatural force, some type of agent out there that you're constantly engaging with and being possibly morally in some way in relationship with whether you believe in one of the books or not. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the the poll you mentioned was from the United States where religion is, well, perhaps not compared to Ireland, but certainly compared to England. You know, it's a remarkable, striking difference that people are just very religious in the way they live their lives, you know, whether they go to church or or not, and their beliefs, certainly. So, yeah, 34% of self-declared atheists actually expected to be called before God on Judgment Day. Now, in America, the percentage of self-declared atheists itself is quite small. So we're talking about a very small proportion of the population, and uh, maybe they just hadn't got their ideas straight. But to me, it wasn't that surprising, because I can think of lots of people who say they're atheists. But, you know, when you press them on certain things, you can see they get a little bit edgy when you start asking them about, you know, moral conduct and whether they'll ever, you know, have their comeuppance. So what you're saying is that they haven't actually thought it through, is that it? Well, it could be, you know, it could just be a mistake and psychologists might say, well, you know, that's the problem with polls. If you get these people into a lab and ask them many more questions and sort out what their theology is, then you'll perhaps find that they recognise that's inconsistent. But this is the other interesting thing coming out of the so-called cognitive science of religion, that 
religious doctrine is one thing. So what the church teaches us, we should believe. But quite another thing is what people actually believe. And that's very interesting because what people actually believe, their kind of intuitive beliefs are often much more in line with this idea that, yes, although there's this loving God out there, which we hear about in church, when it comes down to people's everyday lives, they're actually just as worried about the punishments as they are in the rewards, um, in the way they conceive of their personal God often. Obviously, this wouldn't apply to everyone. Transfers across cultures as well, that the kind of doctrinal view of other Abrahamic religions, gods, or even in China and Buddhism, for example, this is something you probably know a lot about. When you ask individuals, you know, what they believe about whether gods and spirits affect their lives, they often say, yes, it it does very much so. And I'm worried about this local spirit as well as a higher God as well. So religion as practiced um, is the phrase which is often used, turns out to be very powerfully often about people's moral conduct before the spirits that they worry about on an everyday basis as well as what they're told in church. I've often wondered that if you're doing all this type of research or whoever does all this type of research, that if they brought the respondents, I know it would be impossible to do anyway, maybe it's a bit idealistic on my part, out for a walk in the woods and then ask them these types of questions, how things would change and the different environments that these types of studies are done in, how does that reflect the respondent's ability to come up with a clear and concise, honest answer? Now, bringing up the Gallup poll, you quote a 2005 UK Gallup poll, which really surprised me, basically found that large proportions of people believe in supernatural events. And you have that 40% believe in haunted houses, 27% believe in communication with the dead, 13% witches, and 39% fear of smashing mirrors. I couldn't believe that. It shows you possibly how vulnerable we all are in so many different ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I guess when I first saw those figures, I was surprised as well. And again, a little bit sceptical, like, well, if you sit these people down and quiz them, do they really stick to those beliefs? Um, but it turns out that they're very repeatable results. And those polls have been asked over many years and the percentages haven't really changed a great deal. It's not just because people are watching the X-Files more or something like that. These seem to be kind of very consistent, high levels of superstitious beliefs in the population at large. And you get similar results in the US and in the UK, interestingly, because people often sort of say, oh, well, you know, the Americans are different and superstitious, but actually it turns out to be similar in, in the UK. So, yeah, I mean, it's surprising, but does seem to be the case. And I think your point about walk, uh, take people out for a walk in the woods or in the graveyard at night is a really good one, because... People are not religious. They often don't really think about these things. But again, when something bad happens or when something good happens, that's when these um, intuitive beliefs about supernatural consequences seem to kick in. And I think if you elicit those or prime those, then you find that quite quickly people not change their beliefs, but suddenly demonstrate that they do have these underlying concerns about supernatural punishment. And there's been some lab studies as well, which have deliberately primes people on purpose. They've got people into the lab who may be religious, but also some atheists, and they give them a little task, like unscrambling words, some of which are religious. They have to make sentences out of these words, which have religious themes. And after having done that, those people then become much more cooperative in games, as if somehow their brain has been triggered to think about um, supernatural consequences. So there's some empirical evidence that um, priming people, if you like, taking them for a walk in the woods does make them think about this kind of stuff more and it changes their behaviour, which 
again, is intuitive, but um, we have some empirical evidence that that's really the case. Why do you think it is, though, Dominic, that people won't readily admit to believing in different types of superstitions? That what does that tell us about human psychology? Okay, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. So I, I think, yeah, the, the surveys are remarkable because it shows that many people have these superstitions. The, the surveys themselves note that probably the numbers are even higher because even to a stranger conducting the poll, people are sometimes a little bit reluctant to admit to these kinds of things. The other thing that I sometimes wonder is, well, the people I tend to meet on an everyday basis, academic colleagues in the university are sort of more liberal and, and often atheist. You know, I don't often meet people who do declare themselves to have superstitions or, or religion. But it's very interesting. If you press people, you can usually uncover something that they do which doesn't make sense unless it's a superstitious belief. So I've been pushing all, all my favorite hardcore atheist friends to discover what their superstitions are. And I haven't found any yet that don't have something. Just as a matter of interest, what's the difference between a hardcore and um, a not so hardcore atheist? That's a good question. Well, I I make that distinction because some people, again, just seem to not quite have worked out what their beliefs are, but they sort of have an atheist stance. They don't have any religious affiliation. They'd say they don't really believe in God, but they haven't kind of got very strong beliefs about it. They just don't seem to have thought about it very hard. Then you have other people like Richard Dawkins who have thought about it extremely hard um, and have come to the conclusion that um, God does not exist and they're pretty strongly, I was going to say biased, but they believe in it very strongly. So yeah, find a hardcore atheist friend, observe them closely and, and see if you can find out what their superstitious rituals are. And I've yet to find one who doesn't have something, something like, you know, wearing a favourite shirt to an interview or something like that. Again, it could be pre-performance routines, you want to settle yourself and feel confident. But I think at the end of the day, these things speak quite strongly to the power of beliefs and supernatural consequences.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Well, in tonight's show, I'm talking with evolutionary biologist and writer, Dr. Dominic Johnson, on his new book, God is Watching You, How the Fear of God Makes Us Human, published by Oxford University Press. Now, one of the fascinating questions Dominic poses in his book is what are the implications of our supernatural punishment mindset for how we as individuals go about our daily lives? Put simply, do we put belief into practice? Well now, this is where it gets really interesting. Dominic writes, People often argue that religion is essential for moral behaviour. Many religious doctrines, leaders and adherents claim that without religion, individual moral standards and social harmony will break down. Influential opinion leaders even use the threat posed by atheists as a tool to motivate their followers. This has been a strategy in Western civilization since the origin of the concept. As religious historian Jan Brammer reminds us, Greeks and Romans, pagans and Christians soon discovered the utility of the term atheist as a means to label opponents. This slur continues today. I asked Dominic about superstitious beliefs and whether it could be argued that superstitious beliefs are not morally vacuous, but may be a force of good. Yeah, so this is probably something that people would argue about or disagree with, that People worry when you start mixing up religion with superstition. They say they're different things. We have to be careful because religion is about a social institution, which typically is about moral behavior, among other things. And superstition is not. It's just arbitrary cultural beliefs. You know, put this rock under that tree on a certain day of the year. But it seems to me, having looked at the literature, that superstitions are often quite moral. So things like walking under a ladder, yeah, it's hard to see what the the moral connotation there is. But things about performing bad deeds and getting one's comeuppance for not being kind or generous or something is a common aspect of many of these superstitions. So it seems to me that on the whole, superstitions make us do good things or positive things rather than the opposite. It may not always be the case, but it strikes me that superstitions make people a little bit less selfish and a little bit more cooperative. Now, you argue that we're always looking for meaningful patterns and random events and that you say somewhere that we have an innate tendency to attribute positive and negative life events as happening for a reason. And that, that's, again, coming out of the psychology literature that human brains have this so-called intentionality system that when something happens, we tend to ascribe it to some deliberate process by which that good or bad event came about. There's even some really interesting evidence that when something happens and people have the choice of saying, did something cause that to happen or was it just a random freak event? People are more likely to think that an agent caused it if it was a bad negative event. So there's a bias, if you like, to perceive agency for negative events, which is exactly what we'd expect if this supernatural punishment hypothesis is, is true. Would I be right in saying then, if, as you're saying, this supernatural hypothesis is true, then that whether we're experiencing a very challenging illness or possibly falling in love or whatever it is, that some of these intense events in life can accelerate in some way a greater degree of superstition and a greater degree of ritual? If, say, for example, somebody going in getting chemo or somebody going on a first date or somebody 
coping with a recent bereavement. Yeah, that's the argument. So we would expect from these laboratory studies and also from the ethnographic studies of religion that the things we talked about earlier, like the whaling groups in the Pacific, this uncertainty hypothesis, that we would expect this to be ticking away in the background all the time, but to become particularly salient and powerful when people experience high-stakes events where they lack control and where they want to try and exert some some control over what happens. And I've noticed this with people over big life events, so disease and death in the family, for example, and also, interestingly, surrounding childbirth and pregnancy. People seem very quickly to kind of think that whether they are successful or not in these kind of major life events can quite easily have some kind of meaning. It's a big claim, but I've noticed this to, to be the case among people I've talked to. And again, it, it just is exactly what we predict from the uncertainty hypothesis. So we perhaps shouldn't be too surprised. But what surprises me is how powerful it is in people's minds. Now, you some very interesting research on how people perceive agency in the environment. And you talk about the hyperactive agency detector device. So it's a kind of a social radar that we all have. Can you talk with me through how that differs in different people? Okay, yeah. So it's a silly name, the hyperactive agency detection device. Uh, I didn't come up with it. Other psychologists in, in the psychology of religion have come up with it. The HAD for short, H-A-D-D. So it basically just describes this empirical phenomenon that we see agency everywhere, that is sort of this radar, as you put it, is sort of buzzing away all the time in the background. And wherever we look, we see agency. And one of the famous experiments demonstrating this is people watching a computer screen with two shapes moving randomly about the screen. And then when you ask people what's going on, what do they see? They often describe the shapes as chasing each other or fighting. So people perceive agency even in random events. It does vary. So different people have somewhat different dispositions uh, in the extent to which they perceive agency. But you get natural variation in, in all of these kinds of traits. And I think the striking thing really is that most people demonstrate this. It's kind of like a universal phenomenon of uh, human nature. Um, and there are others too. So the had is one, but also cause and effect reasoning, the fact that people link up cause and effect very easily, even when there is none not necessarily ascribing it to an agent, but linking up cause and effect. Another one is mind-body dualism. People argue about this, but people tend to perceive bodies and minds as being quite separate, which, of course, is one factor which facilitates belief in supernatural agents and and gods and ancestors and spirits and so on. Where do you stand in that yourself? So I used to be completely convinced that um, it was very much part of human nature to have this mind-body dualism and that it made sense because without having those concepts as separate you couldn't really conceive of a god being out there somewhere with no physical body it's almost you know you had to have that i think the degree to which it's a universal belief has been questioned a little bit especially across cultures so people argue about this and there's academic papers saying it is or it isn't important i sort of lean towards the original view that it that is something we all seem to have And it's certainly something which seems to undergird religious beliefs quite powerfully. And there's been some nice studies showing, for example, that if you tell people a story about uh, an animal that dies and then you ask them questions about what the animal feels or thinks or believes after death, they very quickly sort of rapidly say, yes, it's not thirsty, it doesn't need to eat. So they recognize the body is dead. But when you say, does it still miss its friends, that kind of thing, people hesitate in saying no. 
as if we can't quite intuitively let go of the idea that the mind is dead. So there's lots of empirical evidence that there's something different in the way people conceive of mind and body. But emotion and intellect are so different and uh, depending on where you're built in all of that, it's going to affect every possible way how you think about every possible thing, isn't it? So some people might tend to think like that more than others and there's lots of individual variation. But again, it's seems to me, at least in Western cultures, quite a common belief. So there's a book on this whole topic called uh, Descartes' Baby by Paul Bloom, and he talks about how it's very natural for children to grow up believing in this kind of mind-body dualism. The the other cognitive mechanism, which I've list four in the book, which talks about three, the the fourth one is really interesting too, the just world theory, uh, or just world beliefs. And again, it's just based on empirical evidence that when people read about someone who's suffered some kind of misfortune, they tend to assume that they deserved it. It's completely, you know, unjustified and sounds very vindictive. But this is a kind of problem for juries often. So there's a lot of interest in this in in law. You may have come across this yourself, that there's a bias against the victim often, that people assume that having suffered this um, negative outcome, presumably they were asking for it or deserved it somehow. So it's not necessarily so powerful that they always think they're guilty, but that it biases to some extent some of the jurors some of the times, sometimes in important cases. And again, this is something that's been studied in the laboratory, and we all seem to have this bias to believe that if something bad happened, people deserved it. And ethnographically, it's very interesting as well, because in many indigenous societies, if someone becomes ill, the assumption is that they must have done something wrong, and that's why the gods are punishing them. It's a fascinating topic, but it also is uh, very disturbing. Can we talk about the spread of non-belief? Because you, I know that you, you give some very interesting stats on countries in Europe and the growth of non-belief. And you pitch up a very interesting question. What would happen if we gave up on God? What's going to happen? Right. So this is the six million dollar question. And I think my overall perspective is that Without religion, we're not all going to descend into chaos. Many people argue that is actually the case. You can find a lot of American commentators, for example, explicitly saying that, you know, we must have religion, otherwise we will literally descend into chaos. But we have examples like Scandinavia, where religiosity is extremely low and moral order, if you like, is extremely high. Lots of social welfare, very little crime, high levels of cooperation. So clearly we don't need high levels of official doctrinal religion to keep societies in order. But that shouldn't be any surprise, I think, because we have alternatives now. We have governments and police and laws and courts which are extremely effective. And there are clearly, therefore, other methods aside from religion for promoting social cooperation. The question is, does religion add something in societies where those institutions are not yet well-developed? or even where they are well-developed, like in Scandinavia, does religion still lurk there in the background as an important part of individuals' moral thinking and moral behavior? And I think both of those things are true to some extent. And towards the end of the book, I suggest that while secular institutions are often very effective today, uh, deterring crime and uh, punishing criminals and so on, there are some things about religion which we can probably never beat So the police are always out there, but they're not always watching. They do not always know what we're doing. They can't always catch us. But God can. So for those who believe it, it seems to me that religion has an intrinsic power that we will never match with secular methods.
And that was evolutionary psychologist and author Dominic Johnson. God is Watching You, How the Fear of God Makes Us Human is published by Oxford University Press and retails for just under 25 euros in hardback. Now, I have to say hats off to Dominic. God is Watching You is provocative, accessible, insightful and incredibly well written. Well, that's it for Talking Books for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. All that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to Ronan Burnock, who helped out with this week's programme, and the lovely Marianne Kennedy on sound. We've been Talking Books. I'd like to end tonight's broadcast with some stirring words from Nobel Prize-winning American physicist Steven Weinberg, who stated, Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, it takes religion. Brave words indeed. Good night. to 108.